Well, good morning. You know, I'm, I'm excited to be here. I mean, this is, this is one of my favorite times of year. As we come in and we celebrate, I just love everything about this season. I love uh, the trees and I love the lights and, and I, I love the food and I just love everything that we do and everything that happens. It's just, it's just an exciting time of the year. I love specifically as a parent of young children watching my kids grow up. And as they began to understand more and more of the, of the Christmas story, they understand the significance, the importance of what Christmas is all about and watching them grow as they, as they realize these things. And so watching Samuel as he got older and has begun to understand more and Annabeth and then uh, now our two-year-old, Ella Grace. I mean, this is, so this is her first Christmas that she's, she's beginning to understand something. <laughs> now, of course, she doesn't understand everything. But she does understand that there is something specific, there's something important about this baby Jesus. And she has her own little nativity set, it's the, a little tykes, and in it is little tykes Jesus, which is her favorite. Little tyke Jesus can rarely be found under the manger because she always has him with her. And she takes him everywhere. Most of the time, it can be found in her bed. You know, some mornings he has breakfast with her and she, she does a lot with him and it's a lot of fun. And in fact, one morning I realized this is going to be a great Christmas for Mary because we were having breakfast one morning and I was making the kids breakfast and they were having waffles. Now remember in our house, me making waffles means putting the egos in the toaster. It's don't, it's nothing bigger than that. But so Ella's sitting there and she's eating her waffles and of course she's feeding them to baby Jesus. And so he can have breakfast. Well, all of a sudden, I hear Ella, and she goes, hurry, 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 and she's running off, and I think, oh my gosh, what happened? So I'm running after her, and I go in, and she's in the bathroom, and she's holding Jesus over the potty. I'm like, oh no, and she's like, Jesus, pee-pee in the potty, pee-pee in the potty, and I thought, well, that's great. For Christmas this year, Ella has potty trained baby Jesus. So I thought, what a great, what a great Christmas for Mary, what a good Christmas present. Now, if only the reverse could happen and he could help her a little bit and be very nice for us. But I love this time. I love this season because there's just something about it that no matter who you are or where you are, the heartstrings of nostalgia get pulled in our hearts. And we think back and we reflect upon Christmas's past. And in particular, a lot of times we remember Christmases from our youth. And we think about being kids and waking up and, and unwrapping presents. And it's neat. And I just love everything about it. I mean, our, our culture and everything gets caught up in it. I just love this time. But every year as we approach this time, not only do I get excited, but I have a little bit of fear. A little bit of fear creeps into me. And it's a fear that I not only have for myself, but I, I have for Jamie and I have for our family, and I have for you. And it's this, it's that sometimes we can get so caught up in the goings-on of Christmas, all the, all the trees, the lights, the decorations, making sure we have the, the Christmas list just right. You know, we all have the aunt that asks for ideas and then goes by something completely different. And then you're trying to figure out, well, what do we do about that? And we all have these things that happen and go on. And it's that we can get so caught up in these things that are just the shadow of what Christmas is supposed to be. We can get so caught up in the things that, that are not the core. 
they're, they're not the centerpiece. And we can just turn and we can run around in the shadows and never really focus on what the true focus of what Christmas should be. We can focus on everything else. And then my fear is come next week, after Christmas is over, it's Monday, Tuesday, and all that will really have changed for us. The only thing that would be different in our families or in our hearts is that maybe now we have a little more wrapping paper that needs to be recycled. We have got a credit card bill that's a little higher than it was the month before. We have all these things that's happened. We've maybe put on a few more pounds and the belt buckle has to be loosened a little bit. This probably will be the case in our house. And maybe we have a brand new, bright, shiny red sweater to show off. And all these things could have taken place and all these things have happened. And we spent the whole season running around, playing in the shadows of Christmas and never really focusing on the core and on the centerpiece of what Christmas really was intended to be about. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time to revisit the Christmas story. I want to, want to quickly retell the Christmas story because we can move along so fast. We can, we can go through the season at 100 miles per hour and get caught up in the shadows and never really focus on what's going on. I mean, we all know the story, right? So it all began with politics. So we had in the day of Caesar Augustus that he sent forth a decree for a census. A census motivated nothing more than to raise money. You know, you've got a big empire. You've got to defend the empire. You've got to have troops to expand the empire. So we want to take a census. We want to count our people. Why? So we can tax them more efficiently to raise more money for a bigger army to spread our boundaries even farther. It's political motivated. So everybody has to go back to their hometowns where they came from. And so we come across the little tiny town of Bethlehem. And these two people, Mary and Joseph, and they have to go back to their hometown, where they came from. And they go back to Bethlehem, a city way too tiny, way too small to handle all the people that have to come back to be counted for the census. So they show up and they arrive and they look for a room. No room in the inn, right? And so what happens? Well, we know that baby Jesus is then born in a feeding trough. Well, he's probably not born in the feeding trough. Probably was born and then put in the feeding trough. But regardless, feeding trough. And it's an amazing story. You know, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. And then we find out the very first people to hear about the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, it's not big shots. It's not kings. It's these shepherds that are sitting in a field watching their sheep. These angels appear and tell them. And so they get up and they go and they worship. And then later we have these wise men that come and they show up and they bring gifts and they worship the king. It's an incredible story. It's an amazing story. When we think back on the birth of Jesus Christ, you know, I remember when I was on staff at Grace Bible Church in Dallas. And every year we had a program that was called The Joy of Sharing Christmas. And what we would do is we would go through and we would set up the church. And all through the church we would have different scenes of the Christmas story. And we would take people on guided tours through each scene. So you have the angels telling Mary, you're going to have a son, baby being born, shepherds, wise men. And they're going through the whole, the whole story. They'd wind up in a room at the end where we would share the gospel with them and talk about what happened. And it was just a great thing. It ran all weekend. And in fact, it was this last weekend in Dallas and have hundreds, thousands of people that would come through this. And it was just a neat, great time. 
And every year, we'd set it up for it for weeks. Because literally in the church, in every nook and cranny that we had, we'd have stuff stored for this thing. And we got to go pull it all out and set everything up. And in our going in our costume room, and there's a costume for everybody. You know, there's Mary. There's Joseph. There's the little baby Jesus. Shepherds, wise men, it's all there. Until one year, I noticed something. I realized something as I was looking through. And I realized we, we were missing a character. We didn't have a costume for him. Somebody who was a main mover and main shaker at, at, at the birth of Christ. And I mean, he was right there. And we don't have a costume for him. And I went home and I looked at our nativity set. And sure enough, this character wasn't part of our nativity set. And I come back to the church and I look at our nativity set in the church. And well, it's not there either. And in fact, if I went into most of our homes and looked at all the nativity sets that we had set up everywhere... I bet he'd probably be missing from those nativity sets as well. And in fact, as I think back on it, I can't ever remember this character being put in to a nativity set anywhere. But our culture has recast this Christmas story. And when we think about it differently, you know, we, we tend to sit back and we reflect on that night and we, we think of this great, peaceful evening. You know, our culture tells us that it was a silent night. You know, it was a holy night. We watch the movies and it's a pitch black night with all these beautiful stars. Our songs tell us that it was so quiet, it was so silent that, that Jesus, no crying he made. Isn't that wonderful? I need a night like that sometimes. <laughs> no crying he made and it's this blissful, wonderful picture we have in our heads and it makes us want to go and grab a cup of hot chocolate and sit on the couch and, and just relax in the bliss and tranquility of the evening. And little do we realize and little do we know that there was a war going on. There was a battle that was taking place in the unseen that, that we don't see and that we don't know and that often we pass over. And this nativity story that we're going to look at this morning, it's not told in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not told in the Gospel of Mark. It's not told in the Gospel of Luke. It's not even told in the Gospel of John, although God did use the writer of the Gospel of John to write this story for us. It's actually found in Revelation chapter 12. So if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and return to Revelation chapter 12 with me. If you turn in your Bibles, you can go to the very back, hit some maps, come back in until you see some first words in the book of Revelation. So a little bit about Revelation. So when we arrive in Revelation, what we have is we have John. And John's been sent to exile on the island of Patmos. He's been sent there by the Romans, and he's been sent there because they don't like the fact that he's preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at this time in history, the Romans are going around, and what they're doing is they're crucifying people who are sharing the good news. But for some reason, John doesn't die a martyr's death. They exile him, he's sitting on the island of Patmos. And while he's there, he receives a number of visions, and John writes them down for us. And they, they come in story form, and he, he puts them down, and we can see him, and they you know, as we look at them, they see and they point to the reality that's behind them. It tells us things that have happened in the past, things that are happening, and things that will happen in the future. And it, it lays it out for us. And here we come in and we find this third nativity story, this third nativity scene. And it begins in John chapter 12, verse 1. If you would, let's look. And John writes this, and he starts in verse 1. And he says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So here we have this woman and she's beautiful 
And she has majesty and she has power. But who is this woman? Well, throughout history, the Catholic Church has understood this woman to be Mary, the very mother of God. And although Mary is contained in this imagery of who it is, but this woman is God's people. It's God's chosen people, the people from whom He would send a Savior to bring the world back to Him. And she is beautiful. The sun represents Jacob and the moon represents Rachel. And the 12 stars, well, those are the 12 tribes of Israel and or also the 12 apostles. And it goes on to say this in verse 2. It says, She was pregnant and she cried out in pain. And she was about to give birth. So while this picture here represents the imagery of Israel's pain before the first coming of Christ, it's through Mary that this fulfillment comes when she gives birth to the Christ child. And so we have a pregnant maiden. But not also do we have the pregnant maiden, but we have the unknown character. (laughs) The unknown cast member. The missing costume from our closet at Grace Bible Church in Dallas. And it goes on to reveal that to us in verse 3. It says this, Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And so here, first, we have the woman, and she's beautiful, and she has majesty, and she has power. And then we're presented with this dragon who is the epitome of ugliness and hideousness. And when we get in and we see and we look, we know that this dragon is revealed for us later in verse 9 as none other than Satan himself. And the seven heads and ten horns, well, they represent the seven nations and the ten rulers. You see, ten kings will rule under his authority, but when the Antichrist comes and he rises through preeminence, he will subdue three nations. And there will only be seven left. And these seven crowns, royal crowns, will they represent the political authority that they have during the great tribulation that is to come. And this dragon, this Satan, he is the epitome of ugliness. And he has incredible power. In fact, in verse 4 it says, As he looks back, John sees back now before the creation of Adam and Eve. And he says this in verse 4. It says, Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment she was born. You see, the first part of this sentence goes back to the beginning. It goes back uh, before the creation of Adam and Eve and it talks about it talks about an angel. <laughs> an angel known as Lucifer. One of the second of God's incredible creations and in what he had made. But Lucifer got it into his mind and it crept, his pride crept up in his heart and he rebelled against God. And for that, God threw him out of heaven. And a third of the angels went with him. And ever since that time, Satan has been here on earth And he has been against trying to thwart the plan of God here on this planet ever since then. As God has tried to use His people to bring those who are lost back to Him, He's been adamantly against it. As God has sent forth His Gospel to bring the lost back to Him, Satan's power has been ever much trying to fight against it. You see, Satan is not (laughs) all-knowing. He's not like God. But Satan was concerned, and he should be, because what he did know is that, as in the book of Colossians, it tells us that in this child, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwelt. 
And that although he didn't know how God was going to use this event, he knew that if he was going to survive, if he was going to make it, that he had to get rid of this child. He had to do something about it, and so he was concerned, and he had a problem. And so ever since the Christ child was born, he was there, present, ready to devour. And in fact, it goes on to say this in verses 5 and 6. It says, She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This refers back to the prophecy in Psalm 2. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place God prepared for her where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So this prophecy that refers back to a number of things. It can refer back to when Herod was there and he tried to kill the first, tried to kill the Christ child. Or it can refer back to the time when Christ was in the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. Or it can refer back to when Satan manipulated the minds of the Romans and the Jewish rulers and had Jesus Christ sent and killed on the cross. Because remember, Satan, he's not all-knowing, but he had concern. He didn't know what was God was doing, so he came in with guns blazing and he was ready. And he had Christ sent to the cross and killed there. And he thought, yes, yes, I have victory. And God said, no, <laughs> no, Satan, you've, you've only played right into my hands. Because when it came time for Christ to die on the cross, His mission here on the earth had been fulfilled. And it was time for Him to go. And it was time for Him to leave. And He had done what He had come to do. And so His death on the cross was exactly the will of the Father. If you remember Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it said that sweat came off of His head like drops of blood. And he said, Father, if there's any other way that this can be done, if any other way this can happen, other than my having to go to the cross, that, that's what I desire. But not my will, but your will be done. And so Christ submitted to the will of the Father and he went to the cross. And there he bore the sin, the weight of humanity on that cross and died there as a penalty, taking our penalty of sin upon him. And since Satan cannot touch Jesus Christ, he then goes after Israel. And this is what John sees is Israel running into the wilderness where God provides protection for them for 1,260 days. Basically, 42 months, 30 days. The last part of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. And now comes a war in heaven, and we see this in verse 7. It says, Then war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. So here we have a description of Michael and his angels and they're at war, they're at battle with Satan and his angels. And Satan has dealt a decisive blow. In the Greek, this term, it really means that Satan was bounced out of heaven. He wasn't tossed, he wasn't chunked, wasn't pushed, he was bounced out of heaven. And a decisive blow was dealt. And how does this happen? Well, look at at verse 10, the beginning. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, 
Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down or bounced down. You see, Satan literally means the adversary. The devil's literally means the one who accuses the accusers. And that this is what Satan has been doing for all time. Satan stands and he looks at God and he points at us and he says, he says, look at this person. Look at what they have done. Look at their sin. God, you know, sin reigns in their heart. They have cheated. They have been traitors. They are liars. They are adulterers. They are drunkards. They do this. They do that. They are no good, God. They are losers. Look at them. And Satan has been doing this for all time. And you can roll back the biblical history and you can look back and you can see King David. And I'm sure Satan was standing there and he was looking at God and he said, God, look at David. Look at his life. He is a traitor. He is a murderer. He is an adulterer. How can you call him a man after God's own heart? Look at him, God. And God would look and he would say, Oh, I see, Satan. I see, but I've got something coming. Something's coming and you don't know about it. And Satan would look at King Solomon and he would say, God, look at Solomon. He's a philanderer. He's got 700 wives. He's a hedonist. God, look at this man and look at his life. And God would say, Satan, I see. I see what you say. But I've got something and something's coming. And Satan would stand before God and he would say, God, look, where is your justice? Where is your justice? How can you be a just God? Look at these people and look at what they did. Where is your justice? And he, God looks at Satan and he says, Satan, I hear what you say, but I've got something. I've got something coming that you don't know, but be ready. And so it goes on, reading the end of verse 10 again on into verse 11. It says, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So why was Satan bounced? Why, why was he smacked down? Why could the, the referee count to ten when Christ had died on the cross and his mission had been fulfilled here on earth? Well, it's because Satan goes before God now. And he looks at him and he says, God, look at Jason, Wheezy Poppy. That man is a hypocrite. God, listen to Jason, Wheezy Poppy this morning. This man is a lousy preacher. He is a terrible pastor. I've watched him and I've watched his life. He doesn't love his wife like he should. He doesn't love his kids perfectly. Look at that man's life. But now with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God looks at Satan and he says, Satan, you are a liar. In fact, you are the father of lies. 
But because Jason Wheezy Poppy has placed his faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's not what I see anymore. And when I look at Johnny Lampo, or I look at Stephen Wright, or Aaron Kennedy, when I look at those who have placed their faith in the death and the resurrection of my son, when I look at those who are my children, that's not what I see anymore, because in place of their sin, I see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Satan, your accusations no longer have any weight. They no longer have any truth. They are nothing but lies. Because you see, you want to know what I've done? Instead of giving Jason Wheezy Poppy, instead of giving King David and King Solomon, instead of giving my children what they deserved, I sent my son Jesus Christ down to the earth is fully God, is fully man, lived a perfect and sinless life. He did what no man could do. He bore the weight, the sin of all humanity, and he took it to the cross, and it was nailed there. And he died, and he rose again three days later with victory over death, victory over sin, showing that he was God. He loved the poor. He had compassion on the weak. He did the things that I had called humanity to do, but because of their weakness, because of their flesh, they could never do. But in Christ Jesus, I did it. And so Satan, when you stand before me now, when you stand to accuse those who are my children, it's all lies. Your accusations, they have no basis. You cannot accuse them anymore. It's a wonderful word. They were defeated by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And when we walk and when we live in the righteousness and the grace that we receive, having been justified forever, we begin to live the way that God has called us to live. And Satan no longer has any accusations. Look with me in verse 11 and 12. It says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. See, like I said earlier, we know that Satan is not like God. He is not all-knowing. He doesn't know all things, but here is what he does know. He knows that there is an end, and he knows who wins. Just like we all know, in the end, our God wins. And he knows that. And he is angry. And he has fury, but he does have one trick up his sleeve. And that is lies. Because he knows that if he can step into our culture and he can get us to believe that we really have no need for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, that our sin really isn't that bad, that there are perhaps many ways to God. And I mean, all we really need to do is be good people, right? We just need to try hard enough pull up our bootstraps and get going. If he can get us to come in at this time of the season 
and get focused on the, the trees and the lights and making sure we have all the right presents and the house is set up just right and do we have everything prepared for who's coming to visit and oh my gosh, my crazy uncle is coming and what will we do? And if we can get caught up in all these things, that is the shadow of Christmas. That's all focus of the, the thing that's the very core, the very centerpiece. Jesus Christ at Christmas, then He can render us powerless and we lose our witness and our testimony. A very time when it can be the greatest. If, if He can step into the individual's Christian's life and he can, he can get you to believe those lies, I mean, you're no good, really? I mean, don't you know the things that you've done? Can God really forgive that? And if he can, I mean, how could he really use you? You know, you're a drunkard. You're an adulterer. You're a liar. You're a thief. If he can get us to step in and believe these lies, 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 then he renders us powerless. He kills our testimony. Just like all those many, 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 many years ago, he was swept out of heaven with a third of the angels. He'd love to sweep out of here with as many of God's special creatures as he can. And that's what he desires to do. He wants us to forget that we were forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. He wants us to forget that his accusations, his lies, the things that he says about us no longer have any power against us. For all of us who are in Christ Jesus. It's one thing that this passage also makes very clear to me. It makes very clear to me that there are two types of people in this world. And only two types. There are those who when Satan stands and he sits there and he accuses, that hopefully for most of us, God looks at him and he says, Satan, you are a liar. You are the father of lies and that is not true. Because in place of that sin, I see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But there are those for whom Satan will accuse. And God will have to say, you're right. Because the book of Revelation goes on and it talks about a time when it's a great thing about the Bible. We have a beginning, a middle, and we know the end. It's laid out all there for us. But God will come and He will bring justice. And He will do what only a holy and just God can do. Because He is holy, sin cannot reign within His presence. And He must deal with it. And so I get excited at this season. And I'm excited to be here. This is December 18th. Next Sunday when we come together, it'll be Christmas Day. And I'm thankful to work for a guy like Blake Jennings. Many senior pastors don't give up the Sunday before Christmas to let their associate preach, but I'm thankful that he has. And I'm thankful for you guys. Jamie and I have been here just over a year, and many of you have stepped into our lives and ministered to us in numerous ways and loved us and great gifts and tokens. And so this morning I think it's only fitting that I give you the greatest gift that I could give to you. And in fact, in Scripture, in 2 Corinthians, it talks about that gift, and it's thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And that's His Son, Jesus Christ, that He sent for us. I want to do that because when we talk about those two kinds of people, I want to be very clear 
that I want us to be able to stand before God and we be the ones that God stands and He says, for you, Satan, those are lies. See, we all have a problem. Way back early in history, God created everything. And it was good. And it was perfect. And God gave the greatest gift to Adam and Eve He could have given them, and that was a perfect relationship with Him. But then enters the serpent. And Adam and Eve, in their own pride, dwells up and they rebel. They disobey God. And they fall. And through that, sin enters the world. And ever since that time, every man, every woman, without exception, except Jesus Christ, has had the same problem. And that's a problem of sin. The Scriptures make it clear to us. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone. That's all of us. Everyone included. Myself. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem tells us the problem with that sin is is for the wages of that sin is death. Not, not just a physical death. We'll all physically die. But a spiritual death. An eternal separation from God. Because God is holy. And a holy God can't have sin. So what do we do? Well, God sent us a little bit of good news. Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But while we were powerless, while there was nothing that we could do on our own, God in His great grace and His great love toward us and His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, on this earth, to live, to die. And on Him He took the sin of humanity and He took it to the cross and it was nailed there with Him for us all. He died for us. The death that we could never die. He paid the payment that we could never pay. And because He did that, for those of us who place our faith, our trust, and the work that He did, we can enter back into relationship with Him and our sin no longer separates Him. It's a free gift that He extends to every man and every woman. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that none can boast. This is His free gift. The gift that He extends to you. To all of us here this morning. It's simple. We just need to recognize that we have sin. And that this sin and its power separates us from God. But because of His great love, His grace toward us, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin so that we can enter back into relationship with Him. And in the same way that He rose again from the dead, so we will also rise again in victory. And thus, when Satan stands and he comes to accuse us and he points at us, God looks at him and says, Satan, you are a liar. That is no longer true because in place of their sin, I have put the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's the atonement for our sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. This morning, as we sit and reflect upon the greatest gift that we have ever received, Lord, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, 
Lord, I want to confess. I want to confess for myself that oftentimes I get caught in the shadows of Christmas. I get worried about all the little things going on and I fail to reflect upon the greatest gift, your son, Jesus Christ, during this time. Lord, I want to confess that oftentimes I believe Satan's lies. And sometimes I look at myself in the mirror before I come to this church and I think, God, if the people that sit in these pews only knew me, they would never have ever brought me on as associate pastor of this place. And I can see it hinder my ministry. Lord, I pray that we would not believe Satan lies because that's all that they are. That you have forgiven us and you could certainly accomplish everything on your own, but because you love us, you call us into your service. And Lord, thank you so much. Lord, for those of us who don't know that truth, who never placed our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, this morning I want them to pray along with me. That they would understand it's not the powers of this prayer that save them, but it's what they believe in their hearts. But for those of you who have never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you to pray along with me silently. And that is, Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And because you are a holy and just God, sin cannot be in your presence. So I recognize, as your Scriptures tells us, that that sin separates me eternally from you. But Lord, I want to give you thanks for your love, for your grace extended to me freely that You sent Your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin, a payment I could never pay. And Lord, I trust in You alone for the forgiveness of my sins. Lord, it's my prayer that during this time of the Christmas season that we not get caught in the shadows, but that we live in the full light, the full recognition, the very core, the very centerpiece which is Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. By the power of the Spirit. Amen. So this morning we have the privilege in understanding Christ's death and resurrection. And how fitting it is that we take the time to not only celebrate what God has done, to not only give thanks for what God has done, but to give testimony to what God has done. And through that, we'll celebrate communion this morning. So if I haven't been clear enough on the gospel yet, one more time, on the night in which he was betrayed, Christ took the bread. And he took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that has been broken for you. So take it and eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup He said, this is the cup 
This is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink. Take it in remembrance of me. Christ's body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And it's a wonderful word that we receive. That we were washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so we take the elements and we say this. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. My prayer is that's what we will be found doing. Thank you.